0: Today. Um, um, so, good morning, church. It is. Oh, let's see it again. Good morning, church. Good morning. Love it. Um, so, as been said, I'm Andy. I'm a uh, volunteer on the youth team here uh, and uh, with my wife Beth and small daughter Sophie. Um, and it is such a joy to be with you this morning. Um, so, we are continuing the series on Renew, as been said before, into Nehemiah. And If you didn't listen to last week's talk from Stephen about mission and all of the amazing compassion work that goes on at the church here, I'd really, really recommend it. It was so inspiring and challenging and heartwarming and inspirational. Um, It was brilliant. So do go check that out if you can. Um, Today I have the joy, uh, let me get this one going, there we go, is that working? Brilliant. Um, Of talking about uh, chapter eight. Now... I must admit, when I think of Nehemiah, I normally just think of rebuilding of the walls. Spoiler alert, that is the first half of the book. The second half starts with chapter 8, and it's a great chapter. So um, I've had so much joy preparing this. I hope I can communicate some of that this morning, uh, and we can dive into it. And really, that is part of what I believe the Lord wants to say this morning. It is about having joy in his word. How can we go back to basics? How can we get stuck into his word and have real joy in it? But let me start by asking you a question. How do you think of God's word? Or if you're a feeler, how do you feel about God's word? Is it kind of like a guidebook that you dip in and out of to try and get the best bits? Is it maybe like an owner's manual that, you know, is saved in that cupboard for special attention when you really need deep, difficult things, but it's quite hard to understand? Is it like one of those must-read books that kind of just actually gathers dust on the shelf? Do you think of it more like rules, or is it more like an ancient manuscript? Maybe there's truth kind of in all of these, but how do you think of it? Maybe let me phrase this a different way. What has most influence in your life? Is it kind of the small pleasures and trying to... Uh, work for that next coffee and how, how are you going to get there? Is it, is it friends and family, um, maybe for good or just for kind of the peer pressure and trying to please others? Is it likes on social media or, or just being attached to the phone? Does your phone have undue influence? Is it news? I mean, actually, I think almost the idolization of trying to be up to date with the news or following it, it had such a huge influence on, I believe, people today. Or is it jobs, to-do list, efficiencies? Or is it that small little picture in the middle, which, dare I say it, might be where the keys to the kingdom of God are stored, um, the Bible? And I-, I guess it's into that narrative that I just want to, uh, to start. Because I often find the Bible, fi- the Bible comes most alive when I have that little bit of extra commentary and explanation. And so today, instead of reading a passage and then going from it, I'm going to do something a little bit different and hopefully let the Bible speak for itself to you. So we're going to be kind of walking through the passage and I'll just try and give you some kind of extra explanation and commentary as we go and bring it to life with a few pictures as well. And so let me start big picture. Um, I work uh, as a consultant who does strategy for um, businesses and involved with the sustainability. And so often I find actually to try and fix something or change something, you need to understand the big picture. And when you're aligned on the vision, then you can come through into the changes. So if we take the Bible big picture, and I'm going to try and get all of the Bible on this one slide, it's going to be a challenge Um, what is the Bible? Where are we at? It starts with creation, and it follows the nation of Israel, God's people, God's chosen people. I mean, we are all then part of the Bible, but the Old Testament at least, we're focusing most on the nation of Israel and the rise and fall of them. You know, it was good, and then it was bad, and they uh, were exiled off to Egypt, and then Uh, Actually, God gave the law to bring them back, and then things went better and things went worse with prophets and kings. And we're following this story of Israel. And actually, it came to a point where the kings got so bad, where God, in his love but also justice, um. He said, I, I can't actually continue with you the way that you're going. This, this just, the level of deprivation and injustice in your society, something has to happen. I want to be with you. I want to be in a relationship with you, but something has to change. And so actually, then we come to a point where Israel is exiled to Babylon, And they stay there. They're exiled for 70 years. The temple uh, in Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself and its walls are destroyed by the Babylonians. But that isn't the end of the story. As I said before, God wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to be with us. And so he brings people back. And Nehemiah is the book which actually chronologically is quite near the end of the Old Testament about this return. But, oh, sorry, that was quite loud. Um, but even before, uh, sorry, even beyond that, all of this is pointing to Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus himself showed in the scriptures how it was pointing to him and God's bigger plan, not just for a temporary coming back to Jerusalem, but for an eternal one. How Jesus was the one who can restore our joy and restore us into relationship with God. And so, indeed, actually, if we look at this in the really big picture, We're part of this story which is pointing towards us being with God forever, us being restored into the fullness of that relationship with God. So when we read these Old Testament passages, yes, it is the detailed story about Jerusalem, about the people there, about what's going on, but also it's pointing to Jesus and it's pointing to the future, to the end times. And that kind of threefold layering is so often found in the Bible. When we see the immediate story, we see the story pointing to Jesus, which I should say, none of this surprised God. God. God doesn't get taken in by surprises. All of this is actually prophesied. And the amazing thing about the Bible is when you look into it, you see the links, and you see how the dates work out, and you see how God said, will be exiled for 70 years. And to the day, that was how long they were exiled for. And so all of this is pointing us to God's master plan. But let's then zoom in on Nehemiah. And uh, I want to take you back and uh, take you back to a party. You know, imagine... The greatest party. Well, I'm sure you all have thought of 445 BC. Yeah, what a year 445 BC was. And indeed, remarkably, today, the 2nd of October, was the date in the calendar year when the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. How about that? How about that? So the first day of the seventh month, as it says, and we'll come into the scripture in a minute, um, actually, Hebrew calendar is today and not only that people it gets even better today is new year's day happy new year's in the hebrew calendar today is new year's day and i'm sure you'd have all blown your trumpets this morning because the start of a new month as we're told in psalm 81 is brought in by trumpets because there weren't calendars and smartphones and everything else a trumpet blast symboled the start of the new month and for the new year there are many trumpet sounds because today was a new year. And so a quick look back. What has happened so far this year? Well, back in March, Nehemiah approached the king. um, And so that's Nehemiah 2. His heart was broken, Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah 2, he goes to the king. We're then told in Ezra, um, I don't have a map here, sorry, but it was quite a long journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. So it took him about three, four months to get to Jerusalem. Gets there in August. Round about the time we start our Renew series and, you know, back to basics. And at that point, starts rebuilding, starts, you know, galvanizing the people. And in 52 days, the wall is rebuilt. Remarkable. It's been collapsed for 70-odd years, and in 52 days, they rebuild it. Now, what does that look like? Well, borrowing from the ESV study Bible, um, this is a graphic of what Jerusalem would have looked like. And let me zoom in slightly. So this is uh, Jerusalem as it was, and you can see that kind of, they've shown on the top left-hand side there um, some devastated houses. And so they focused, actually, on the bits closest to the temple and rebuilding the wall closest to the houses. And indeed, you also can see where there's agricultural land to the south. Actually, the wall used to go straight there, but they made it... Um, a, a defensible position was kind of how they described it. So in two months, they didn't rebuild all of that wall to its full height, but they made it to a place where they could defend. In a sense, they weren't so focused on it being perfect. They needed to get to a position where it was defensible, where it was good. And actually, zooming in one click further, you can see there the water gate. So this is where all of Nehemiah 8 happens. This is where they gather. And in a sense, if I may potentially disagree with the ESV, they should blot out one of the houses just above where it says buttress, because there should have been a square there. And that's where all the people gathered. In the square by the Watergate is what we read. So that is the context for this chapter. So let's dive in. Nehemiah 8 and oh the animations haven't worked okay never mind we'll do it all at once um so I'm going to read in the uh, verse top left and then I've just put a few extra kind of points which draw out from it but let's um in a sense kind of read it through together so when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns all the people came together as one in the square And you can see there an image, a more recent image, near the Western Wall in Jerusalem to give you a flavor of what that may have looked like. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law had commanded Israel. And so here we are on New Year's Day. And actually, more than it just being New Year's Day, that day was meant to be a festival day. Now, we don't know if they were actually celebrating this. I think, as we'll see, they probably weren't. But their calendar, their whole society had sort of got into the habit of celebrating. But maybe they'd lost the true meaning of the festivals. Maybe kind of see parallels with where we are today. Our calendar and our, our you know, holidays are geared around some maybe slightly forgotten religious festivals. But they, they gather, they're, they're there. And do you know what's cool it's that they ask Ezra the priest to read them the law. Actually in the book of Ezra when he's talking to the people and that's about rebuilding of the the temple Ezra has to command the people to do this but here we see a people so moved probably so unified and so full of fire you know from rebuilding the walls and they're doing this they ask Ezra they were eager they were hungry but I kind of want to ask the question, well, hungry for what? You know, in some senses, their physical needs have just been met. Their walls are rebuilt. They're back in Jerusalem. They're safe. That's, life is good, right? Well, a- actually, physical restoration is only one half of the equation. And it's only one half of the book as well. We are more than just flesh and bones. We are souls. We are spirits. We are spiritual people. And actually, the physical restoration is only one half of the story that God wants to tell. God wants to restore us spiritually too. And the the shift of the book actually goes from leadership of Nehemiah, an individual, into the revival of a nation. Yes, revival of a nation. So as we go forwards into the next bit then... So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. That's a long time. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. I don't know about you. And when the last time you listened to five hours straight of Scripture, I'm afraid I can't say I've done that recently, but clearly I'm missing out. Um, I, had a, I had a check, and uh, if you want, you can listen to all of Genesis in about four hours. So, you know, I'm not quite sure how much they got through on this first day, but, you know, it goes on for multiple days, this festival, but here they are. And they're, they're standing up, as we'll hear about in a minute, and they're listening attentively. But also note here, we've been thinking about Nehemiah in the last few weeks. Nehemiah is not mentioned at the start of this chapter. He is the governor. He is their, their kind of community leader, but he is not the priest. And actually, Ezra and Nehemiah worked really closely together, but it's not just the Nehemiah show. At this point, it's about what God is doing with the people, they asked Ezra to bring the law. And Ezra was the one who then understood it. So Nehemiah, in a sense, has taken a little bit of a back step. But also, one thing I really want to mention here, and in a sense, this is part of who Vineyard are, everyone is welcome. It's not just the men here that it mentions. Indeed, the way God orchestrated these public festivals, these these festivals of God, was that men, women, everybody... Stopped work and came to celebrate. Everyone is welcome. This is not just for the few, this is for everyone. And indeed, I really believe that's true for God's house that we are all here. We are all called and loved by God. So, as we continue on, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, and then there are some difficult names. Um, uh, I'm not even actually going to try. There are 13 wonderful people there uh, who you all, I'm sure, can, can read. Um, uh, bless them. Uh, and so Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. So this, first of all, was a planned event. There are some commentators who kind of think it's a little bit random they came together, but actually we see here that there's a platform built. They wanted to see Ezra. Now, why? I was kind of asking my question, asking myself the question, why why does it make such a big deal of him being above them? And I was thinking, well... In some senses, it's that shared experience. You all can maybe look back and say, do you remember that day when Ezra said, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that, yeah. That guy, not just in small groups at that point, we'll come on to that in a minute, but actually you could see Ezra. They could all look together in the same direction. But also I think in this... um, something which you often see in typical anglican churches and others the raised pulpit you know being able to see the person in a sense we've got it here today you know partly practical but also it's something i think about you know consciously putting the word of the lord at a high place and you know referencing its its authority but i believe also in this context for um, for the Israelites, it's about that authenticity. It's about saying, yeah, we all actually heard from Ezra, the priest. It wasn't just second-hand hand-me-down information. We could see him. We can know it was the law. Th- this was the word of the Lord that came to us. So as we, oh, and sorry, and um, uh, at verse 5 here, this is the key verse that a lot of Orthodox churches use that says, when you're reading the Gospels, you should stand. Because they take it from this verse here, where all of the people of Israel gathered together in that square. They felt compelled to stand. And indeed, they would have been standing for five hours straight, listening to this teaching. But it's at this point, again, that say they just felt so compelled they should stand. And so hence, that has then led into church tradition today around standing, especially for the Gospels. So as we go on, they then say... Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and repeated, Amen, Amen. Then they, um, I can't read that on the screen over there. Uh, Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I thought it was so cool, and we hadn't scripted this at all, how Andy um, uh, this morning started with Thanksgiving. And actually what we can see in the scripture here is that It is so important to start with thanksgiving when we come to the Word, to be reminded of what God has done for us. I believe that raises our faith levels, but it also centers us on God. It centers us on who God is and where we are in that, but also one awesome God we can approach and learn about. And that then leads into praise. Um, there's a great uh, expander of the word, theologian Derek Prince, um, who uh, has got some amazing talks. And, and one of them, he talks about different types of prayer. And he says he always starts when he prays with these two forms, thanksgiving to send to him and then praise leading into that worship, you know, expressing who God is. And that really then sets the context, which can then move into other forms of prayer. And indeed, the repetition here, Amen, Amen, is a literary form in the Bible to really express that intensity, to express that feeling. You know, if, if I may, in our modern day context, it may be like this it may be a whole group of people passionately going for it in worship. And I thought the worship band were absolutely fantastic today. And I believe our our youth um, are so cool and they so often lead us in worship. And Graham and others and the worship leaders, thank you for doing such an amazing job. It's that sort of context which the people here are listening to Ezra reading the law. And there's such then also biblical precedent for bowing down in worship. Be it Moses, Joshua, Job, in Exodus, we see times when the whole community bowed down in prayer and reverence. In the same way that they felt compelled to stand because it was important, they also felt compelled to fall to their knees because they realized quite how humbled they were. But let's continue on. So, uh, verse 7, let's pick up the story. The Levites, uh, okay, I'm going to go for it, Jeshua, uh, Bani uh, Sherebiah, oh, there's a nice moth, uh, Jamin, Akub, Shabbeth, Hodiah, Manasseh, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. And here we see it's not just Ezra from the front saying the word. This is actually about... Then putting it into smaller groups, having that structure in place such that people can ask questions, can say, I don't understand that. What does this mean? Or what do you you think that requires us to do? Or how should we live out this way? And this is what we in the church have as life groups. And it's so exciting that they're starting up this week. And if you're not in a life group, I really highly recommend um, getting involved with one. If you go on the website, you'll see this banner and you'll be able to click through and sign up. And this is, um, again, I just love how God's timing worked out, how today was the 2nd of October and life group starting here. And this is really what um, is happening here in Jerusalem. They understand it. And what would they have been doing? Would they have been translating it from the Hebrew into the Aramaic? So putting it into the local context, um, putting the scriptures that that they read, you know, and, and understanding what it means uh, but also, I think it's, um, it is pointing to the bigger plans I mentioned before. It's reading from the book of the law and saying, well, this is what it means for you, and also hear how we're looking forwards. So we're halfway through. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. I think this verse more than anything else strikes me. Because here you have a people who are listening to the, to the word of the law. And they are so deeply impacted by what they hear that they weep. And I don't know about you, but for certain situations, um, be it in the news or in the world, it, it makes me weep. But then how often do we get that when we read the Word of God? And I find that the times when I really read it and, and comprehend it and go, yeah, you know, actually this is talking about me and I can relate to this. And I am so far short of how God wants me to be. Or, or I can see so much, you know, what God is calling into actually that conviction, about there, that deep personal conviction is really the starting point for change, but also for God's love and joy to come in. And it's when we understand the true depths of God's word and what it means. I believe that's when we then get hit right in the center of who we are to say, actually, this is the point that God wants us to, to change or wants us to move into. And so they were weeping, the Israelites there together were weeping. They'd heard the word of the law. Maybe they'd actually read, they'd, um, uh, read the bit that said, that day they were meant to be celebrating a festival of trumpets. It could well have been that very bit. And in, in Leviticus around it, it also talks about blessings and curses and how you know, God's people had failed before and God was angry with that, but God wanted to bless them. So I can almost imagine them hearing this and going, oh, man, you know, we should be celebrating the festival today. Actually, we're just gathered together to listen to the law, but there's so much more we could be doing. And so step in then the Levites that say, don't be sad today. Actually, today is a festival today. Today is a day to be glad and joyous. And more than that, today is a day to share with others. Nehemiah said, go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that is a wonderful little sentence at the end there. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So let's unpack that a little bit. So this is not saying don't mourn. Far from it. There is a time for mourning. We'll come on to that. Chapter 9 and Nehemiah onwards is a time for mourning and a time for deep reflection. What it's saying here is that actually there is a deeper need. And joy is very different from happiness or from a superficial level. Joy is found in God himself. And our deepest need is with God and being in relationship with him. And actually in times of mourning, we can do that together with God. It is so much better. And um, yeah, God wants to journey with us. And so even in the darkest times, even when the whole nation knows they've disobeyed God, they've basically forgotten about him for years. Here they are together. They're impacted. They're weeping. Yet the Levites encourage them. And I believe this is a word of encouragement for us today that says, no matter where we are, God is with us. And indeed, we know that Jesus has gone to the darkest, deepest place And he has overcome the grave so that there is hope and so that we know that that God can make a way. And so in that, we have this amazing promise that the joy of the Lord can be our strength. We are nourished by joy. And so as we go forward, I believe that actually there is this, this kind of flow, that as we understand the word, understand what God's telling us, and the spirit really enables that too, we can have that deep personal conviction which then leads to joy, and I'd almost argue that we probably can't get the deepest levels of joy that God wants without going through that middle step, without acknowledging where we are weak, without acknowledging where we have fallen short, because God wants to fill us from the deepest place and then fill us to overflowing with his joy. And so the scripture here says, the Levites called, uh, sorry, calmed the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Awesome. Wouldn't that be great in our life groups as well? That actually we come to life groups as we are, real, honest, honest maybe often sad, weeping, challenged in different places, we gather together, we support one another, we understand what God's word is for us, and we leave with joy. May that be so for us in this season today. May that be so. And so the last bit um, of this, uh, this book, uh, of this chapter rather, says this. On the second day of the month, so this is the next day, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild Sorry, from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So here we are. New Year's Day, everyone gathered. There's a festival. They realize it's a festival of temples. The next day, there is no actual festival. What we see here is that the families were hungry for more. People gather together. It didn't actually require everyone because they need to go back to their fields and keep working. But what we see here is the leaders and the families saying, we want more. How can we have more? I really believe today, I'm I'm getting excited, but I'm I'm so thinking that this is like a new year for us in the church. We are gathered together as a community hungry for more of God. God wants to honor that. God wants to pour his joy in. God wants to journey with us throughout whatever we're doing. And what they're doing here, which is so cool, is they're reading the word of the Lord, but they're reading it actively. They're saying, we've heard about this festival. We had no plans to celebrate this, but now we want to obey what the word of the Lord is saying. They read it, they understood it, and then they obeyed. And what is the Festival of Booths? Well, in a sense, this is probably the the closest we can get to a DTI or to a new wine or to whatever else. This is people gathering together in temporary shelters, maybe think like tents, um, and they're celebrating God. But it has a really, really deep significance for the people of God. God put it in here partly because it's like a harvest festival, So it's them celebrating what God has given them. It's them coming together and praising the Lord for that. But also the temporiness of these shelters points to their wandering in the wilderness. It makes them remember the journey that they've been on and how actually we are all so dependent on God that our lives here as well are temporary. These bodies that we exist in now are temporary dwelling places for us but that God has an eternal hope. All of this is looking forwards. And indeed, I almost called this talk, I kind of felt the Lord say, looking forwards. Because in everything, as we kind of said, the whole Bible is looking forwards. This festival that the people are celebrating, which is a key part of Nehemiah 8, is to acknowledge where they are, be thankful, but also look forwards to what God is doing and wants to do. And so the final bit of uh, uh, chapter 8 says this, so the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gates, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, that's seven days they celebrated, Ezra read from the book of the law of the God, oh, here we go, they celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly." Here we see, and I can only uh, picture a kind of African singing and dancing and great joy that they had as they came together, as they were obeying the word of the Lord. And what I see here, and what many people kind of comment on, is this really is the beginning of a revival. As we see in future chapters in Nehemiah, it goes on to talk about the rejuvenation of society. It goes on to them saying, how we're doing things isn't just, isn't right, I think it's so appropriate for the world today that we see you know, areas which we go, oh, I just wish if this could get better. Actually, this is the starting point for them. They were gathered together. They were hungry. And they also kind of sacrificially invested in this. They invested their time. They came together in dwelling places and they had such great joy. So my final slide is kind of just summing that up really and just saying where are you and as we come to communion next which I think again is such an appropriate moment to um, partake in Christ's body and blood how do you experience God's word how what is the joy you feel but also in your situation what is God wanting to say to you in that some of the lyrics that we sung earlier I just thought was so profound and prophetic. Chains will fall, prisons shake at Jesus' name. And then again, then you came along and put me back together and every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Church, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can get to know you better through it. And that as I believe we understand it more, as we understand more of what you've done for us and how you made a way for us to be with you, dealing with our sin on the cross, that you outwork your plans and purposes personally in our lives, but also in our society and our world. And Father, I pray today that we here in Winchester, may be part of your bigger plan, that we may know your joy, looking forwards to all that is ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.